He gives rest to all flesh, for His devotion is eternal. Because of His great goodness, we have never lacked, and we shall never lack nourishment forever and ever. For the sake of His great name, for God provides for and nourishes all. Who does good to all and prepares nourishment for all of His creatures which He has made? Blessed are you, O Lord, who Amen. We say it for you. We say it for you. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other night. We'll we'll tell that joke on Tuesday. Why would a rabbi walk around on stilts? I don't know why. Because he was in a tall mood. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. More wine for him. That's good. We gotta go. We <laughs> missed the mark on that one. Okay. Well, good job. Good job. That works. This is the 18th portion of the year. How many are there in total? 54. We're about a third of the way through. This week's portion name is Mishpatim, which means judgments. Today is the 24th of Shabbat. Next Shabbat is Rosh Kodesh. So you can uh, do your uh, blessings on Friday evening. Mother's Day off. Wow. Didn't know that. That's good. Is that what that, is that, that should be? Right? All women, not just mothers. Okay. We want to send out a big mazel tov to Amaritakis, who is having her bat mitzvah today. Is that on? That is on. We have several folks watching us from afar, including, I hope, Alex and his bride. I think uh, I think we have a couple of new folks. So uh, just let me review this for all of you. Um, if you can't make it for whatever reason and you're watching from afar, as Taylor is doing with his bride and newborn son, Soraya, right now. Um, Happy birthday, Lori! Then we will uh, we will advise you that if you want to be able to go back in time and watch it later on, you need to email. Let me know that. Um, 
but you can watch live. And if you have a question that you'd like to pose while we're in the midst, you can just write to questions at menoftorah.com. And currently, all my sons get that email so that while I'm leading, they can help me with somebody who may have a question in the midst of class. Very cool socks, matches your uh, your bride's top there. Very nice. Very nice indeed. shows a true it's a sense of your masculinity. That's it. <laughs> Compassionate. Yeah. That's good. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, that's awesome. Blessed you, Adonair, God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonair, God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we in our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. We are not going to read this entire portion today. If you wanted to read it with us, you should have been here at 10. But I must praise God openly, outwardly, and publicly to say that... Uh, Based on the uh, RSVPs, we really did think that there would be barely a minion this morning for prayer. I knew Jerry wasn't coming. <laughs> but, uh, shocker, once again, in the midst of a, a room full of people, uh, we not only had to take the glass table down and put it under the couch there, thank you to the strong, virile men who did that, um, but we also had to bring in chairs from the kitchen, and we had a full house and almost two minions of men. It was a tremendous and wonderful time of prayer and uh, fellowship. The, uh, the points that I'd like to bring up uh, during this portion this morning, after I give you guys a chance to, uh, to see where you want to go, other than reading about, you know, borrowing stuff, a guy dies, tunneling in, all that. Um, I'd like us to talk about law versus grace as uh, as Rick did in his Bereans Online newsletter this week. How many of you got that and read it? How many of you got that and didn't read it? How many of you? Okay. I, wanna, I, I, just, I just want to encourage you that uh, it's, it's free for the asking, and it's always an extraordinary read that is a blessing. And I think that everyone who reads it would, would agree. I'm in? I'm in. Okay. Um, so, yeah. at, at the risk of uh, repeating some of what he had in there, um, I'd like to talk just a little bit about that and how we can respond, especially since we all keep the Torah here. Um, how can we respond to folks that say, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not under law. We're under grace. So, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, secondly, we're going to talk about parents. And, um, and the failing of our, our nation and why it's failing and uh, what we can do to turn that tide. I'd like to mention the city of refuge, uh, which is not mentioned directly but indirectly in this portion. Um, and I don't, I don't even think they're named or anything. Just, uh, just I'll, I'll give you a place to, to go. Uh, and, then, and then finally we'll look at, uh, at judgments. All right, comments, questions?
All right. We begin in uh, Exodus chapter 21. And the first thing I would ask is, uh, I was told uh, by a, a religious man recently that when I questioned if we should keep the Torah as believers in Messiah Yeshua, he said, uh, well, absolutely. Otherwise, it would be a lawless society, and we would be associated with that man of lawlessness. I thought, wow, he's like on the same sheet of music. And he says, but of course, the ceremonial and the... Uh, and, he, and he started to pick it apart. And I, and I said, well, 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 I was with you 100%, and now you've, you've divvied up the Torah, the law, into three sections, civil, ceremonial, and moral. I said, how do you make the distinction about which one is... He said, oh, it's obvious, he says. Really? So... Three highlighters. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Johnny's right, you know. Take three highlighters and start reading through a passage like this, or read through Leviticus 19, which the Master quoted from a couple of times, and just say, you know, pick a color for civil, pick a color for moral, and pick a color for ceremonial. And you may have to blend some colors, or you may have to split a verse right in the middle, which is odd, or you may find that you don't have it within you to figure it out. And I always find that if I'm trying to figure out where God's drawn the line, it's normally because I've already walked past the line and I need to back up in my thinking. Gregory. Well, uh, Judaism does the same thing, breaking it up into three different ones. And so it, I don't know if it's necessarily the breaking up that's the issue, but it's what you do with it after it's broken okay, up. Okay, good. Because they would take two out of three and say, oh, well, God doesn't want us to do those anymore, or however they go about saying it. Right. That's right. ridiculous, because Judaism's perspective is that all three, even broken up into the categories that they break them up to, is really just more of an intellectual thing, and all of it's still applicable, exactly. and the Torah will let us know when it's not. Good point. <laughs> now, there is, there is a good point that comes from your comment, and that is the Torah is broken up into categories, but we don't have to make them up God did it. They are obvious. They are. He says, these are my judgments. These are my testimonies. These are my what, what statutes. Are statutes. These are my instructions and so on. Uh, to me, I think, <clears throat> you know, whenever that, that argument comes up, right, and usually from a Christian perspective, they're arguing why you do away with the two categories and only do the one. Correct. Right? Yeah. Um, the fallacy with that is you can take um, commandment. You can take a commandment like um, observing Yom Kippur, which they would put in the ceremonial bucket. That's right. But the consequence, according to the Torah, for not keeping Yom Kippur is you're cut off from your people. So there's a moral consequence for not keeping a ceremonial observance. Or is and, it a civil so it starts no, to no, I was going to say it was a civil consequence. I'm, yeah. I'm questioning where he's getting his category. No. <laughs> so it's so there's a you know so it's, it it just it gets flimsy really quickly in the, in the what that what the categorization for purposes of trying to annul certain groups of laws uh, fails to recognize is that every law by definition is somebody's morality legislated. 
And that is true even in our own society. We can take a simple example as a, as a uh, well, no, even, even let's take speed, speed, uh, <coughs> speed, uh, speed limit posting on any road, right? This road, we have a civil ordinance that says you cannot go more than 50 miles an hour on this road. And if you go more than 50 miles an hour and you're caught by the police, then you're going to likely pay a fine. The question, though, is who decided 50 was the right speed limit and for that? Why did it? Somebody thought it? Somebody thought it was the morally right thing to do to not allow anybody to go more than 50 miles an hour to either protect themselves or others. So there's a moral inference Absolutely. to the civil ordinance. Absolutely. So every law, by definition, is a moral Absolutely. obligation. Well, I think it's especially Period. true. With, I think the speed limit is a great example because if it was just a recommendation, they have those too. The <laughs> yellow signs on like the exit ramps are like 35 miles per hour recommended here. Now, if you go 50, no one's going to pull you over that. You just might end up, you know, driving on the, the exit ramp. Exactly. <laughs> Good point. I, and, and if you've ever had the experience, I'm sure most of you have not. But if you have broken the, the, the laws and ended up in court, it, it does end up to be somewhat ceremonial as well. <laughs> <laughs> hypothetically. Uh, hypothetically, of course. Yes, that's, right. Experience. that's right. But I think the Torah does have um, even more categories than the ones you mentioned. They all, but again, these are obvious. Things, for example, God says, do this, but only in this place. Do this, but only at this time. A lot of specificity. Do this only if you are a guy, or if you're a woman, right. or you know, a child, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I mean, and it's very much, it's so sad, I suppose, and odd, that in an effort to understand what they should do or shouldn't do, we end up creating an entire list of guidelines that aren't in there, like, when we have all these guidelines that are there. Yeah, I, I, would, I would think that most people in this room would argue that their reason for breaking them up like that was not to figure out what to do. It's, as others have said, to specifically justify not doing so. Right, of course. But, and, and then also to give an exemption so that you don't feel guilty for not having... I wasn't supposed to. That's right. That's, I'm, no, I'm no longer under that law. That's right. Yes, We're not sir. a theocracy anymore. For, for, a, for something to have, have... For something to stand up on its own, it has to have some, some, some form of independent validation right. or internal validation depending on what it is. An example, the negative side is today we're told that uh, a government spying upon us is, is maybe bad, but it's okay. The government will decide when it crosses the line, but we won't <laughs> tell you when. So there was a secret. So that's the negative side. But if you, if you start thinking about that, it's like, well, that's self-validating. The only thing that is, the only person that can self-validate is God. Otherwise, we must have independent validation. And the Torah is self-validating. And any time someone tries to unvalidate or invalidate any portion of the Torah, they have to use the Torah to do it. Yes, Otherwise, they become, the, they become God. Right. Kings can self-validate. They're allowed to. That's what being a king is all about. You self-validate. This is the way I want it. We don't live in a monarchy. God is the ultimate king. So when we, in a democracy or a democratic republic, <laughs> determine that the government will move on from there, I'll just <laughs> I don't I don't want to I don't want to lose the time. Yeah, I just want to add a point, and I agree with what you're saying in terms of this Torah uh, really defining itself. But then there's a question: What do we mean by the Torah? 
Orthodox Jews consider the Torah, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, but also, you know, from that joke you told, the Talmud, the Mishnah compiled by Yehuda Nasi, and the Gomorrah. So when we look at that, and then the Mishnah Rabbah as well. So when we look at all these things, there is discussion about what should transpire post-Messianic, which is not in the, we'll call it the Torah proper, in a way. So without those other things, we really don't know. And it's much like, you know, someone just training for the sake of training, not realizing there's a strategic purpose in mind. And I know a lot of people here have copies of these books in their house, and they study these things, like like Elder Upham, for example. <laughs> We've had discussions at his house on uh, Sabbath. So keeping that in mind, I think what's interesting is we're all under grace. But Jesus also said that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you really won't be worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. But yet he came, this is before he fulfilled everything. It's in process. Now it's fulfilled. And do we do it because of our love? That it's not a requirement to do a lot of these things. I mean, certainly a lot, like don't murder, certainly. But the others are to show a greater love that it's not necessary, but we do it for Abbat Hashem, for love of God, that we do it. But I would offer I agree. that we are required. I was just going to say, I agree with everything you said. Because I of love, know that I would agree we are, that we are we're compelled not by love. In yeah. other words, the reason I don't murder is not simply because I'm afraid of the consequence, but in the same regard, the reason I don't eat unkosher is not because of the fr my fear of the consequence. Both fall in exactly the same category. I do it because I love the Creator. So I agree that it is because of love, but I would not say that some things I do because of love and other things I do because I have to. Or because it's morally right. Because everything that I do from love, I have to do. That, that's an interesting point. I just want to address that. But there's certain things that trans universal uh, principles. You know, people talk about relative morality versus a universal morality. And relative morality is kind of scary. The person that's mugging me believes in relative morality. So, you know, especially if I'm their relative. But the thing is, you're talking really in terms of universal, things that transcend culture, that transcend That's actually time. what Paul addressed when he, when he talks about it in Romans chapter 4, that universalism, he doesn't say that it's a universal Torah. What he says is they just stumbled into it, but it's still the truth. What we need to recognize is just because some people stumble into morality doesn't make it more moral or more compelling than the things that they reject as God's morality. And what we need to understand is that it is just as immoral to eat unkosher as it is to murder, because both are against the Creator. That, that's an interesting point. You know, the, the idea that make them equal, you know, eating a bacon sandwich as opposed to committing murder, they're both wrong. They are, but is one more than Absol another? Absolutely, don't misunderstand when I say, yeah. but the differentiation that you were offering was one I was required to do, whereas one I do because I want to do because of love. And I would say that actually the requirement is the same. But you see, I, I would respectfully disagree and I'll tell you why. Because some things are for all perpetuity, but other things I think are part of a training program for us. And it takes reading the Talmud and the Mishnah Rabbah to realize, to be able to differentiate between the two. Hold, please. Yeah. I, I appreciate where you're coming from. But it sounds like we just stepped into opinion. And our perspective here has always been 
that the Torah, and by that I only mean the five books of Moses, uh, in its literal sense, and in its broader sense, the entire Tanakh, including the apostolic writings. We have always thought here that these are defined and undeniably required of us out of love because we believe in Messiah Yeshua, not in order to gain a place in the world to come. So when you say that some of these things were a training program and potentially a time-bound period of time, I strongly disagree. So what we would need to find is a validation for that concept in here before we move on. That's an interesting point. Should the validation be within this or from the other body of Absolutely within this. You'd never find it. You're right. right. Because you Which is why I stopped. <laughs> <That's not laughs> this is an interesting point. But because you wouldn't find it, it's sort of like the Karyite argument that they believe totally in what's writing. Yes. And like, for example, so Tefillin. Try to find Tefillin in here that would actually describe exactly how to create well, that. Yeah. I don't need to find that. I just need to find whether or not I should bind it on my hand and bind it on my head. But you wouldn't know what it is. That's the point. You're right. We agree. We agree. Yes. But whether or not we should bind it, we agree and because I, he says to the bind difference it. Being, the difference being, I think here, what, I, what I'm sensing is that what we are saying is that you can use the outside sources to commentate on how to do but what's not, in it. But so the outside sources would never abrogate what is written. In that case, it's like, It'd be like saying, well, we don't know what tefillin is, and the Mishnah says tefillin is, well, you know, nothing. Tefillin is nothing. And then that would be a problem then, because it's like, okay, well, we, you're right. We don't know specifically maybe how to do it without additional commentary, but that's still trying to do it. It's not, the outside sources is not saying, oh, no, you don't have to do anything, right. which I think is where a lot of the argument that you seem to be presenting well, is or, trying to argue. Or where the carry comes from to say, it doesn't say how. So doesn't say what it is, so we don't. We because the only way we know or is what the rabbis say. Or we make it up. Or we make but, it up. But this is brilliant, because this is the big question a lot of Jewish people have, especially with the false messiahs, you know, Shabbatai Spi and so on. When people believed the Messiah came, that he was truly the Messiah, and they began to change things because it was part of that body of knowledge that things will change as a result. But then you raise a, a point yeah, I, I fully believe that the ones who changed it were making a mistake. Yes. Well, I think they were making a mistake because of the false <laughs> messiah. But you raise an interesting point. False messiahs change it. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, there you go. All right. yeah, thank you. These, these are good points. Yeah, thanks. And, and, and I'm not, for, for the rest of you here, I'm not trying to squelch this discussion. This is a great discussion. We'll have it on Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Yeah. Well, we're not going to have it right now because we need to study this portion right now. And that's my job, is to sit here and be the pain in the neck that keeps us on track or talks too long. To be continued. That's right. You're like Jethro. You're like Jethro with Moses. Well, yeah, we're good. <laughs> but, but Wayne is bringing up awesome and good points. Absolutely. And, you know, quite frankly... Many of these points are raised by folks in the church. And if we don't have a good response, we ought to be in the church building. <laughs> in the church and, building. And I want you to know, Joseph, yes, I love to be wrong in an awesome kind of way. <laughs> and you know what I like about you? You always bring wine when you come to my house. <laughs> All right. And you always have me taste 
tasted. That's right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a mitzvah. <laughs> Timeless mitzvah, by the way. Just like Nehemiah. That's right. All right, so I, I want to bring us to, uh, thank you. Thank you, all of you, for that. Um, I want to bring us to parents. Um, I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was being weepy, necessarily, but I was uh, thinking about my dad, uh, his yard sites this week, and uh, my father of blessed memory. And uh, I mentioned to Wayne, I, I, I never had the privilege of asking him any parenting questions. And uh, I, I'm sorry about that. That's the way God intended it, I guess. And um, that explains it. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today is Mary's birthday, wherever Mary's sitting. My uh, my baby's 19. Holy cow! Um, anyways, it occurred to me that I'm only the second generation of my family that was born in this country. My parents were the first generation of Squitcherinis that were born here, and uh, you may not appreciate the Godfather movie series. But I got to tell you, you know, it, it has a, it has a whole lot to do with the way I was raised. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, but that's 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 how I was raised in a, in a very 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 strong patriarchal family and uh, almost every Sunday after church we would drive from Long Island out to the, to the other end to Brooklyn and we would go into my Aunt Lucretia's house and my Uncle Martin's and uh, they had three generations living in one brownstone in Brooklyn my, my, my great uncle actually and great aunt were in the basement and my uncle Joe Squitcherini um, was on the first floor, and his children were on the second floor. And uh, and I and I thought, I thought as I was thinking about this that the way I acted around my dad and the way I acted around my grandfather and my great uncle, who happened to live by the po like the Pope, by the way, um, not the current one. Not the current one, no. Um, we were always extraordinarily respectful. And my dad was a former United States Marine. And while I think he was extraordinarily strict in the way he raised us, my father only hit me twice in my whole life. Twice. The first time, I was a young lad. How old are you? Twelve. I was about Andrea's age. <laughs> my mother was the church organist at the Methodist Church. So she was at the organ. I was in the front pew with my two little brothers. My dad was a bass in the choir, in the choir loft over there. So my mom is looking at my dad and the rest of the choir and directing with her head, like a little bubble dog in the back of the head. <laughs> so my mom would normally come out from the organ place and sit with me and my brothers during the sermon. But this particular Sunday, we were having a cantata. You know what a cantata is? Big, massive song, music thing. 
and my mom was having to prepare because as soon as the sermon was done, which was going to be short, you know, in, you know, we did all the music stuff. So she did not come and sit with us, and uh, we we were left to our own devices. And of course, I was sitting there rather angelic, listening to the sermon. Uh, <laughs> it's true. And my two little brothers had actually smuggled in two little matchbox, metal matchbox cars. You know, you know what I'm talking about, those little, little tiny cars? So my, my, my brother Freddie pulled a little Jaguar out, and my brother Greg pulled out a little, little yellow dump truck. And they actually started doing little car noises and stuff on the pew, which was okay, except when the pastor had to pause from the sermon and kind of look down at us because it was getting a little noisy. So I went, so they got quiet. But in so doing, they kind of brought their feet up off of the ground and got them up on the pew. And the soles of their feet were made out of like wood or heavy leather. <laughs> and they were making these clunking, bunking noises, which was even worse. The pastor had to stop a second time. But it was a short sermon. Then the cantata... <coughs> and then at the end of the service, during the last hymn, as is according to the Torah, uh, <laughs> the, the choir files out two by two, carrying their hymnals and, and walking out. And they all, you know, of course, the, the bases are last. And then the last guy behind all the bases is the pastor, and he follows them out. And then they get in the back of the church, and Amen, Amen. You know, the whole thing on the back is very cool. Um, so they are filing out during the last verse of the last hymn, and my dad, being one of the lowest bases in the choir, was the last guy in the choir, and in order to make it all work out, the pastor was walking with my dad, two by two. So as they came down the steps, the pastor kept going straight, and my dad hung a hard left, came over to me, and went, wait, wait, wait! Oh, actually, that was a different story. No, he slapped me across the face. He slapped me across the face in front of the entire congregation. And he pointed at me and he said, next time you keep them quiet. Now you may think that harsh. Dad actually doesn't grow beard hair on that side of his it may not surprise you now that I have such a strong care and concern for men and that they act well and that they behave uprightly and righteously. I came home from school. I was a little older than you and a little younger than you. And I was the eldest son. I walked in. My dad is a New York City fireman at the time. And he worked a weird three days on, two days off, two nights on, three days off. Yeah, and you can never really tell when he was going to be on or off. But he was there, and uh, it was one of his days off, and he was washing the dishes. And my mom was a, a music teacher, local public school. And I walked in, and I put my book bag down, and I looked at my dad, and my dad turned his head and looked at me, and he said, you forgot to take the garbage out. I said, why don't you take the garbage out? Why do I always have to take the garbage out? Uh -oh. <laughs> this is a good story. I got an answer. <laughs> he didn't miss a beat. 
He didn't yell. He didn't raise his voice. He picked up the dish towel. He dried his hands. And he walked very slowly down to the foyer where I was standing. And that's when he went, where, where, where? Three times, real hard, in my left arm. And he looked at me and he said, don't ever talk to me like that again. And he walked straight back up to the <laughs> kitchen and started washing the dishes again. Now, I, I didn't bring this story up in order to have you test my father's parenting skills. I raised the point to bring the discussion that parenting is not easy. And since we don't have a lot of the specifics of how, and I would argue we don't also have very many, if any, descriptions of godly and righteous fathers in the scripture, do you find it surprising that the culture in which we live today is falling apart around us and most young people don't want to give their parents the time of day or even respect the fact that they're in the same room. I'm not talking about my own children, by the way, right now. I'm talking about others. Um, don't want to give them the respect of keeping their eyes off the ridiculous cell phone when they're in a room with adults. I think that's a problem. Someone wiser than me said we have a weak country because we have weak families, and we have weak families because we have weak fathers and men. And I could not agree more. I think it's absolutely true. So I would like you to explain to me now, from Mishpatim, why do you suppose God puts disrespecting your parents, for example, striking them, cursing, cursing them, on par with murder? Do you think it's because... He wanted to put women down? I heard that one the other day. Do you think it was because he wasn't an animal rights fan? <laughs> or do you think that he wanted to elevate parents to a point where you would not even think, as even those who think that some of the, the laws are for now, some were back then. Some are divvied into different categories and whatnot. It's really hard for you to put parents in a category different than the one God put them in without really twerking the scriptures. Well, just recently we did the passage that talks about the Ten Commandments. We went through them all and they're, they're numerous, num numbered out. And it's interesting that the honor of thy father and thy mother commandment is, if you break them into halves, is on the left side. It's on the side with the commandments regarding God not on the side with regarding people. Right. And it's because this passage actually highlights that in the, when it says that you shall not curse your father and mother, the sage's interpretation of what that would look like is they would say that would, in the midst of the curse you would take God's name in vain mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So you basically, they're all kind of lumped and intertwined together because parents, or children particularly, are representatives of God to them. They represent what God is like, they represent God's authority. Amen. To dishonor a parent would be ultimately, ultimately to dishonor God. There he is. Good job. Good. Just to, um, to dovetail on that, that commandment, you know, that's one explanation as to why it's on the left side as a vertical commandment. Right. 
but the Vilma Gaon, Blessed Memory, said that the reason honor your father and your mother is in the first five pertaining to your relationship with God is because it doesn't take two to produce offspring. It actually takes three mm -hmm. because God has to implant the soul. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if you are dishonoring your parents, it's as if you are dishonoring God. Mm -hmm. Good. The other, uh, the other, uh, there's another teaching by Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Um, it's a neat teaching. He takes the two tablets. Why is there two? The five commandments on the left are God. You know, the vertical, the five on the right are horizontal. But he says, uh, you really, they're really juxtaposed. Hmm. One and six, two and so seven. So one and six, yes, two and seven. So. So five and ten. So honor your honor your father and mother. Mm, thou shalt not your... covet. Uh -huh. So what's the connection? Mm. Coveting, you know, uh, what and why, what's so bad about coveting? If I if I desire something, as long as I don't actually steal it, which is number seven or eight, um, as long as I don't steal it, why is that such a big deal? And the idea is, you know. Coveting is not like, it's not like jealousy. Jealousy says, you know, oh, you've got a big house. I, I really want a big house, too. Coveting is actually worse because coveting, coveting says, uh, you've got a big house. I want a bigger house. Mm -hmm. And if I can't have a bigger house, then I don't want you to have it either. So it's, it's, coveting is this idea of you don't want any to be anybody or anything to be better than you or above you. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what your parents are. God put your parents above you. Wow, that's neat. And so there's this relationship. Um, and so it's a big, big deal. And of course, you know, as we were all taught in, you know, in Sunday, Sunday school, school <laughs> you know, that honor your father and your mother, that's the first commandment with a promise, promise uh, that, you, that we will live long, a long life in the land. It's a pretty big one with a threat too, but I never brought that right, up to Sunday school teacher. So, um, so there's great insight from our from our sages yeah. on why that's the case. Amen. Good. Thank you, Jen. Well, not in my experience, but from what I read, parents are really abdicating their job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This desire to be a friend with their child exactly. rather than a parent. Mm -hmm. And Jude and I just started recently reading the Book of Joshua, mm -hmm. and you see this generation that disobeyed and were called to task. And then you see a, a generation that obeyed. And yet you see in Judges, the generation that again was lost. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah. And so I think what we're seeing today is is the 60s, 70s, you know, all these things that we grew up in. Basically we have a generation that does what's right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. And parents don't know really how to be parents or don't want to be parents. And that leaves their children floundering, yeah. not knowing That's how right. to respond. Uh, it is it, the saddest, one of the saddest things that Alan and I experience um, is when we, we know, uh, you know a young couple has a child. And they start asking all around to find out the best parenting advice. And eventually they come around to us and we're like, this was a good book, this was a good book, here's what we did. few years go by, and it's obvious they didn't like that counsel. Because <laughs> now you're in Harris Teeter with them, and the kid, I mean, if, not if you were my kid, but if you were my dad's kid, he'd be on the floor. 
I mean, it's unbelievable. Jared. Um, to come from a, um, a different point of view, too, is that my parents were the Easter, Christmas, three times a year going to church. Not until, not until when I, at 14, gave my life and started going to church today. So my point is, is that even though they weren't uh, entrenched in the Bible, that, at that time frame, my dad uh, was very strict because he basically obeyed rules, laws, statutes, regulations. He put that down upon me to where I always talk about fear, but it's not trembling fear. It was respectful fear right. that I had for him. Um, so I, to me, that's where this society has gone, and that's why I'm in this community study is because we do need laws, regulations, statutes, principles to live by. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, that's what we're, this whole society is moving away from, is that we don't need any of this. It's just how, and it kind of goes with Janet said, just kind of how we feel about what we should be doing and stuff. I mean, I was actually a coach for high school not too long ago, and it appalled me to go to that school and see that the students there were hugging, high-fiving, Facebook friends with all the coaches, teachers, stuff. When I went to school, you respected your teacher and you were you feared them mm-hmm. out of respect. Now they're your friends. Mm-hmm. And so there is, we, to me, we're losing that idea that they're, you know, we don't have those. Parents used to be other than. Mm-hmm. And now they're just one of us. Right. You know, and, and I just want to praise you openly here in front of everybody. I know your three children. And they respect you. They're respectful. And you did a good job. And I, you know, I, I'll run out of time. But I can say that about you. I know your sons. And top shelf. One of them is my son-in-law. Well, you know, and I, can, I, I, can, like, I don't want to diss anybody. I, but your, right? your, your sons and daughter are, can not only thank you, but thank you. Your father. Amen. Correct. Correct. And that's one of the things that we need to recognize. And you know, one of my favorite prayers is Nishma. And and the part where it says, you know, we can't we could possibly thank you. We couldn't even begin to thank you. If we thousands, have life, thousands. If we have thousands of lifetimes, we couldn't thank you. And the first thing it says is for the myriads of favors that you showed to our ancestors and to us. And when we recognize that everything that we have came from a many generations ahead of us. We think of our genetic code, and then now think that there's a moral, there's a, there's a moral genetic code that's passed on. Amen. You know, we should, we should, and this is one of the things that when we look at our parents, and when our children look at us, it shouldn't be simply out of fear, or rule keeping, or whatever else. And all those, all those are good. But we should look at our parents with a unbelievable amount of gratitude, because we would be in a wasteland if it hadn't been for our parents and what they did for us. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we then are privileged to pass on what they taught us, God willing, maybe you didn't have those parents, but if you didn't, it's your time to start. Mm-hmm. But are privileged to pass that on to the next generation. And then to hopefully see, as Psalm 28 says, that our children, we see our children's children, 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 that it would be passed on to that generation. When we understand the significance of our part in that chain, that's actually mishpat. We are we are being given, we are giving a societal and a cultural standard 
that hopefully that we can see every generation replicate the standard of God in the next generation. Amen. Mm -hmm. Multi-generational faithless. He never talks like this unless his mother's sitting behind him. <laughs> <laughs> great. I, was I was thanking you. Of course you were. Of course you were. Very gracious man. And she's a very godly woman. What Mr. Wright said reminded me of Hebrews 12, which because it ties together the correction that we receive from our parents with the respect for them. But one of the things... You don't want to read that to the folks oh, well, that hadn't memorized sure, it? Sure, yeah. No, <laughs> the entire chapter. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And that, that, that's the passage where it talks about, you know, the sons, the ones that he loves are the ones that he disciplines and chastises. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that Mrs. Spurlock said that reminded, that made me think about how Judaism and, and Orthodox Judaism gets dinged all the time for using their traditions to replace commandments and whatnot. But I think when Yeshua addresses that in regard to parents and honoring them, it's interesting to see like who does that more. Like who's actually replaced their tradition of having parents as friends, making sure that your children have the best childhood yeah, possible. Those are traditions. And those are and those end up replacing the honoring your father and mother mm -hmm. and not cursing your parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, daughter. Yes. The way that my husband always phrases it is that um, America, or maybe the world at large, but we see it much in America, is that we're, um, parents are raising their kids. They're raising kids instead of raising adults. Mm -hmm. It's like they, they want their um, kids to have a really happy childhood. They don't want to make them do anything that they don't want to do, that they don't like to do. And I, I remember I was talking to a mom once, and, and she said, well, I don't want to make my son do that because that's kind of tedious, and he won't want to do that. And I thought to myself, that never mattered to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> never mattered. I could care less if I wanted to do that, if I liked to do that, because sometimes as an adult, in fact, a lot of times as an adult, and especially as a parent, you do have to do things you don't want to do. Does Morgan want to get up? during the night to feed her baby? No. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be done. And, and I think that's part it's of being an adult. You have to do things you don't want to do. And, um, and raising our um, American couples, or, or maybe in the world, they're raising their kids as like this extended childhood of you don't ever have to do anything you don't want to do. You can, ha you can do whatever you want to do. And you, my, my biggest priority is for you to be happy. It's like that's not what life is all about. Sometimes you're not happy, but that's okay. Maybe they'll learn to do it because they love you. You raise a, you raise a good point. Um, and as I listen to the scriptures, a couple of things come to mind based on what you all have said. And I've got I've got you, then you, then you. Um, um, first is. Uh, the scripture doesn't say, honor your father and your mother if they're believers. Mm -hmm. It never brings that up. Mm -hmm. You honor them. Secondly, our master said that he came that we might have life, and that more abundantly, but never happily. It tends to be pretty happy if you're in community, and you're loving one another, and people outside are going... That's amazing. And they don't even have a building. <laughs> they probably don't even argue about the carpet. And no community. Yeah, they don't have a <laughs> no community. I got you. Then I got her. Then you. Then you. Um, and going back to like what my 
wife was saying, and thinking about the, even a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, and talk as far as um, doing things you want to do. I remember my parents growing up were, were pretty tough on what we ate as far as like making sure that whatever was served for dinner is what was we were going to eat it. And if we wanted to eat anything else, we had to finish what was on the plate. If we were too full, words to live by. If we were too if we were too full, that was okay. But you didn't eat anything else the whole rest of the night until that was finished. Right. And um, no, I'm full. Okay, no dessert. Right. Because <laughs> you're full. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, um, and it's so funny because I'm sure as a child there ha- um, doubtless were times where you know clueless children. It's like, but I don't want to eat the steak. I want to have the cookie. You know, whatever the case may be. Foolishness. So, <laughs> the point is that... I don't want the liver pate. <laughs> but the point, though, that I'm saying is that um, that was, that was the, the, the sad element of that or the difficult element of that was very short-lived. Today, I eat all sorts of great things. And I have a wonderful wife who cooks amazing meals. And I, we go, when we go traveling, we eat things I've never even heard of, as long as they're kosher. And the cool part about that experience is that now my life is so much more fulfilling because I had a parent that made me eat things I didn't want to eat. And I think that that's, that's what I'm saying, like as far as someone we talked about a little bit earlier, I think that sometimes it's part of God's idea with his commandments. Some of his commandments, sometimes I don't want to do them. They're hard, but they're really good. And the long-term results and benefits are so dramatically wonderful. And that's when we talk about raising adults rather than kids. If you raise your kids to be adults, then when they end their childhood, quote-unquote, and they become adults, they're ready to be adults. And they've got 60, 70 years yes. of happiness ahead of them yes. as opposed to raising your kids to be kids. And they hit 22 or 25 now, as the case may be, and all of a sudden they have to be adults, and they got 50 years of misery because they wish they could be kids again. Or you end up with a 30-year-old sloth. Right, or, yeah, children who yeah. are just big. And, but certainly you would have a mature palate. And that's <laughs> um, what, what Mr. Upham said made me think of, like... It, because of the multi-generational faithfulness, and then I started wondering, like, you know, th- what's so cool about the way that that happens is it's almost similar to the passing on of authority like Moses did with Joshua, you know, like, because it's like fathers are passing down that authority, and it's cool that in Ephesians 5, there's the, not only does it say that, like, you know, the man is the head, the husband is the head of the wife, just as Messiah is the head of the husband, but then it mentions the, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, like, later on he quotes that, and What's cool about that is I think that's the same concept, that the fathers are not only raising their children to be respectful of them, but then eventually it's like they pass on that authority to them to then raise another family that way. And I hadn't really thought of that until this conversation. It's it's pretty cool because I can see that, how all of a sudden, like my dad just started treating me so much, so different in, in a very much more, like, peer-to-peer way, right. and not to say that I don't still respect him, but he has a respect for me and, and sure. is encouraging and me you to have, your have own that for my children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, when uh, Juliana was talking about that, about doing something you don't have to do, <coughs> my mother and father were very, very, both very, very different, but my mother was a disciplinarian, but one day she said to me, you know what, Laura, you don't ever have to do anything you don't want to do. And I said, and she says, except for one thing. And I said, what's that? And she said, you have to want to do what you have to do. Praise God. And I think that that's the key to training our children. My dad on the other time was very, very quiet, very, very gentle. But we never left the table without reading a chapter of the Bible and praying. And everybody was 
awesomely quiet and good. And one day, <clears throat> I don't know what I'd said, but he told me I left my pajamas on the floor in the hall. And I must have said something smart, Alec. You know, none of you know me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just because I thought he was my buddy, because I was, I knew I was his favorite because I had this real special relationship with him. He said, "Come here." I got up from the table, went around. He laid me across his lap and he began to spank me very, very solemnly. At first, I'm screaming, "How dare you do this to me!" And then all of a sudden, "What did I do to my daddy that I love so much?" And this is how I explain to kids. We may not always in the flesh want to do what God tells us to do. We have thought we have to want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then it, it's we can do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. But the same thing is true. I, don't, I want to love God so much I don't want to disappoint him. And mm-hmm. I think that's the basis. The gentleness of my father as, as I grew up with him. I read an article recently. It's really, really good because what I've been teaching Parents who discipline their children must hurt with their children, but they must not change. They must keep the rules. (laughs) I mean, one of the saddest things that you can experience is bumping into an adult who who absolutely has no relationship with his parents, doesn't want one, and didn't appreciate anything about them. That's so sad. Because their relationship with God is going to be stinted if it exists at all. Great. I, I think one thing, you know, the, the concept of, in Juliana Ray's concept of being happy. Um, and I think happiness um, is an ideal, especially in, our, in, a, in Western American culture, you know, uh, the, you know, the pursuit of happiness, right? But happiness is really. Um, it's really more of an emotional feeling, but it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. And joy is a spiritual quality. Um, and and I, I could be wrong here, but I was just sitting here trying to think, is there a scripture anywhere in the, in the entire, um, entire Bible that really speaks about happiness? Some English translations happy will say happy is the man, but it's really ashray, which is blessed, which again is not an emotional thing, it's a spiritual blessing from God. And so I think um, I think as as believers and as as um, people of the book, as it were, we should really be focused on developing an, an attitude and a, and a character quality of joy because joy is not fleeting happiness I might be happy today I might be unhappy tomorrow but the joy of the Lord is always our strength Amen. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. and just on that thought we're also teaching our culture at large that happiness or joy is extrinsic externally motivated I have to have we've got to go or instead of being intrinsically internally motivated I am joyous because I'm going to be happy. I choose, even though this is terrible right now, I have to do it. I'm going to want to do it. Exactly right. Public comments. Morgan. Good comments, folks. Thank you. The commandment to honor your parents. Um, In the past, I've associated honor very closely with respect in English, and that just um, seems so much like words 
like, well, we're respectful to someone, so honoring my parents is um, just m more of a thought thing or, or even speech, but um, I think it, it's a concept I've seen in Judaism and maybe other places, that it's so much more tied to action, that the honor you show your parents is, is demonstrated through caring for them, and especially as they, as they get older, because parents will always be in the next stage <laughs> of life, you know, is, is feeding your parents, clothing your parents, and so much more about the care, the actions you actually do for them, not so much about, well, I say yes, ma'am, whenever I speak to my mom. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you should. Yeah. <laughs> um, just let me pause real quick uh, before Rick to say that um, I am blessed, also extraordinarily happy, um, <laughs> but blessed uh, in that um, my all my children and all my sons-in-law, um, I think, go out of their way to honor Alan and I with their time. Uh, I'm blessed. Thank you. Yes, uh, just to bring it for full circle, and I know that you will as well, but it's coming to mind there that the idea that somehow, I mean, you brought up grace, that somehow we will, as children, learn to obey our parents out of love, but never have to feel like we have to obey them, uh, is, is completely devoid of reason in our experience. Uh, the, the, I mean, it's just nonsense. We would never do that. I mean, kids are never going to learn to obey their parents because they love them. That's right. They learn to obey their parents first because they must. They're told they must. They must. And it is only after they appreciate the wisdom of what they've been taught that they obey because of love. Amen. And and what we what we need to understand is it's a, God's the same way. When we when we look at our own lives and, and you know if we and Judaism teaches this, Christianity used to teach it is if you obey God, you will learn to love him. And it's obedience comes first. Love is the is the follow-on blessing that comes from obedience. If we are disobedient, we can never expect to love God. Or be blessed. Rob Yosef, I just want to underscore that point. And I think, as I'm listening to you, I think about the story of Jesus by himself when a couple of his disciples were waiting, and he said, must I accept this cup? Here we have the ultimate with father and son, the ultimate in obedience, yeah. where he knew exactly what the consequences were. Right. But as the son, he knew what his whole purpose was. And how many of us know what our whole purpose is in life? And not just for ourselves, but for all of humanity, for all time. Right. Yeah, the book of uh, the writer of Hebrews says that uh, he was faithful, ultimately, right. in the Lord's house, just like Moses. And even more so. And what's interesting, he says, it's not my will, it's your will. And that's something so important to teach the kids. That it's not about their will, especially for now when they can't consider the consequences. It's the parent that really understands that because empirically they were there. They were kids once too if they were lucky enough to remember. So he yeah, did some, that. Some of us were kids. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one more thing, I'm sorry. I, I no, this good. Early this too. When, I, when I read all these, today, I, when we were reading the Torah, I was struck how scary it was. <laughs> the, the matters of liability. Uh, oh. When you're a young person, may not, may not, you know, when I drove fast and I rode my motorcycle at 150 miles an hour, mm. it may not have had much of an impact on me thinking about liability. Now, thinking back, I think it was only because of God's special grace Absolutely. towards me that I didn't hurt somebody else. 
You and me both. Um, and, and then the, when you consider the liabilities that Mishpatim lays out, it should be a frightening thing. So that we should always approach everything that we do with the fear that we might hurt someone else because they're made in the image of God, and that's why it's so bad. At the same time, I think about these guidelines and these laws we were talking about this week and how cool it is that God, um, the penalties he imposes are an effort to rectify the problem as much as can be done. But the, but that Hashem himself recognizes that there are some things that cannot be fixed. And so when you have some of these stories, like the thief breaks in the house and he steals something, what does he have to do? He has to pay back double. He doesn't, he doesn't, um... Not if he's caught by a 45 at night. Right, that's true. Only at night! Only at night! He doesn't, but it's not, but notice that what he, what does he, what does he return? He returns what he stole, and then he gives something extra as, some of it is intimidation, it's also as, it's the person, you know, has having gone through the trauma of it or whatever else. But, um, so many of these things are, are linked directly to the value of the object. The, the servant's eye is damaged, the servant goes free. But I feel like even the tooth, and I go for the tooth if right. the blows are coming. Right, but it's like yeah. <laughs> but the point I'm getting at is that today, in a lot of lawsuits today, it's all this emotional damage, yeah. pain and suffering, and all these other things, and it's like we're going to charge this person ten million dollars for having you know hot coffee spilled in their no, no, own no, lap. No, no, no. The, the, the saddest part to me though is it's like something that's potentially dangerous. You know, this company installed asbestos in their factory for all these years. All these guys, poor guys got lung cancer. $10 million will work there for the actual damage to their bodies. Another $150 million for pain and suffering. And it's like, God knows there's no dollar amount that goes on heartache and hurt. Mm -hmm. The only way that gets fixed is through internal healing and forgiveness. Yeah. In fact, to put a dollar amount on it would actually be such a lie. It would be dangerous to the person because the person then would feel like, I don't feel any better. I got all this stuff and nothing changed. So the people who are the thief who gets caught isn't sent to prison for 50 years to try and make the other person feel better. At least they got what they deserve. They are told, pay back what you took and a little extra so that way we can fix the material loss. Other than that, it's up to you to do what's right to change your heart. That's right. Hmm. God's These are genes. Yeah, picking up on that a little bit, uh, you know, starts with... You know, these are the ordinances that you'll place before them, and it goes right into the Torah of the bondservant. Right? That, that's exactly where I was going. And, um, <laughs> and you know, there's a beautiful messianic picture in the Torah of the bondservant, which I'm not going to share. But, uh, I mean, I guess unless you want to. But the point I wanted to make was, as I was reading the Midrash Rabbah on this, on this particular set of passages, um, there, there was an interesting perspective that I hadn't heard before, and one of the in this particular um, midrash, the perspective was that the Hebrew slave mentioned in this passage was a thief who got caught, mm -hmm. and he didn't have the wherewithal to make restitution, mm -hmm. so he was sold slave. into slavery uh, mm -hmm. to, to in payment of the debt, and so it talks about it says you know. Um, because, and of course, this is all interesting because here we were as a nation, we were just slaves and we, we just came out, you know, of uh, bondage, as it were, mm -hmm. right? And now the first set of ordinances that we're getting is this whole concept of slavery, right? Um, which is kind of a whole, you know, we have a, we have a pretty good perspective on And he says that several times. We know. Because you should know. You should know what this is like because right. you were just this way. So 
in the Midrash it says, it says this this particular um, Jew that was that was sold into slavery uh, for payment of his debt was a thief, as opposed to a robber. The distinction being that a robber commits his crime in broad daylight, runs up in the middle of the day, snatches a purse, runs off, that sort of thing. But a thief always tries to go undetected. He tries to be concealed. He tries to be concealed at night, whatever the case may be. In this particular case, the thief was caught, couldn't make restitution, is now now a slave. He is now in bondage. And the Midrash goes on to say, huh, it was the sin in his heart which caused him to thieve and as a result of his action, he is now in bondage. In other words, the sin mm-hmm. put him in bondage. Mm-hmm. He is a slave to his sin now. For sick- which is, read, of course, interesting because we have here in Romans chapter, um, chapter, chapter 6, uh, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness and it goes on and it goes on but it's just I, it's just jumped out at me as I'm reading that Midrash that either the writers of the Midrashim got that from Rav Shaul or Rav Shaul is tapping into the same understanding here but it was ultimately the sin that, in, that enslaved yeah, yeah. yes good excellent John I was going to say that there's this portion speaks a lot of punishments and everything, but it also speaks of making things right. Restitution. And one of the things that I discovered when I was reading Ramban and is, is that the Hebraic understanding of this eye for an eye is not taken literally as you know, like a lot of the barbaric surrounding you know, Middle Eastern, Mesopotamian sort of <laughs> societies would, would have taken it. It's, okay, this damage is done, a payment must be provided. And this word is lish, uh, is it, uh, na, which in the middle of that is shalem, or shalom. Okay? So, in, in the modern Hebrew understanding of it, it's, we, we know that shalom is peace, it's a, it's a typical greeting, it has a sense of completion associated with it, but it also means that to pay. You know, to pay for something, to provide the price of something. Well, on one hand, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's that's one payment. But in this case, Yeshua provides the payment because you break one sin, you're, you're breaking them all. Okay, so we will never, in in essence, according to this to the to the Jewish understanding of it we will never be able to come up with enough money or resources to pay for this, to make restitution for this. So 
whenever you want to look for, for grace in the Old Testament, I mean, it's, it's right there. Because you don't have a way to come up with the funds necessary to be set free. You don't have any means in your, at your disposal to come up with a way to set things right. right. God provides that payment, that, that shalom, that price. And the prophet Isaiah would agree with you 100%. And that he will cleanse us. But not to be free, to be slaves, to righteousness. Yeah, that's right. Which is why it's always, just like the parable, it's so much more serious when you sin after having your debts erased. Because that's just spitting in the face of the one who demonstrated the utmost mercy to you. I think, I think so Paul too, said it was trampling else. on the blood. <laughs> so it seems to me that in our culture today, if someone strikes their father or mother, they don't feel comfortable putting the person to death. And in our culture, that would be inappropriate. Depending on the age, they may not feel comfortable putting them in prison. Yeah. Well, I, I made a list here. Uh, family counseling would, would come up. Uh, anger management classes. Um, Community service. Yeah. But death by stoning would, would never be on the list. Yeah. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse, verses 2 and 3, Paul tells Timothy that men will be arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and irreconcilable. In verse 5, we are commanded to avoid such men as these. Just one question. Yes, sir. Um, does it take two or more witnesses to... To kill someone for sure. It actually Father. takes two or more witnesses to establish any matter, whether it has to do with stoning True. or so price of bread. Is, all right. So it, it takes two people seeing the guy punch his dad or three. I think the three. Talmud three. makes it clear that there has been no bait dean that ever made that happen. It's, yeah. it's even I'm just asking that. that for I get discussions with um you know, believers like, oh, so you're going to stone homosexuals? And of course, my first response is, what well, has that ever happened? No. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, so I was just wondering the, the, the judicial system for. Yeah, um, and if, if we're not in a theocracy, you know, all these bets are off anyway. Um, however, it gives us a sense of the righteousness and the direction. And it sounds to me like if you're getting down into that kind of a, a question and discussion with somebody, especially if they're in the church. Yeah, they're they're already they're they're picking on the details. I would bring it up a level yeah. and say, okay, um, you you seem to want to be the God who chooses which ones of these we do. Um, you didn't get voted into that. We've already got a God. And it ain't you. <laughs> yeah. He's um, <laughs> one thing to bring up uh, in that case, I think, which is where I was going to go in a minute, is Romans three thirty one. Do we, especially when they're doing the law versus grace? And we're under grace now, not under the law. All that stuff doesn't count. I mean, I can stone your kids, are you? You back up. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So, um, again, if there's any, if there's any picking and choosing, then everyone would have the right to pick and choose. So. 
if you think that you're I'm safe in my home, I can show you that you're not. <laughs> because I get to pick and choose, you know. Right. But then, on a very practical level, if there was a big gene, it would take two or more people seeing a amended. It would take three, and they couldn't three be. Valid they couldn't be any. Two. They couldn't be any of the witnesses. None of the witnesses could be members of the family. Right. They, they couldn't be, and and the Beitin would do everything in its power. Well, not only that, to avoid it. two witnesses have to agree and see each other. Not only do you have to have the valid witnesses, but it has to be determined that the person truly knew what he was doing was wrong. That's right. Yeah. We know that. Like the mistakes guy. So the the the. And circumstantial evidence is not permissible mm -hmm. in a Jewish court of law like it is in our society. Mm -hmm. So the the uh, the requirements are so high for capital punishment that the the Talmud says that if the Sanhedrin uh, if the Sanhedrin ruled on one capital case, you know, sentenced one person to death every seven years, they were called a murderous lot. Because it was extraordinarily diff difficult under the um, under the uh, the the uh, halakha of Jewish law to actually do that. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, if, which is an act of mercy. Yeah, it's it's actually somebody got their wings. Right? Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. If if you want to. Uh, Know about the chimes? Thank the man who's watching, if he's still watching. David McDonald took about three and a half hours when he came down from Canada to help me restring that thing, and it was a nightmare. God bless him. Um, if you think about the the need to elevate the witnesses and, and disqualify and so forth and, and whatnot, um, a parent who would bring their son out for any of these type of things, it really comes down to an indictment on the parent. Mm -hmm. It really does. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things about these laws that's so cool. Dad mentioned earlier that these are kind of scary, the consequences. I think that's the point. The idea was, let's make it extremely terrifying. If you get caught, it's a life or death matter. But then, we'll make the standards so high for getting caught that this isn't going to happen all the time. So the, the goal, I feel like, from Hashem, for the most part, is not so much... Um, it's not necessarily the, the idea that no one will ever do these crimes um, because he, he recognizes that people are nefarious and pretty creative enough to find ways to get away with them the idea was to prevent them from ever being committed and being accepted so you're right the, uh, the, about, like, the stoning things it's amazing how those times happen like once one guy gets stoned for breaking Shabbat and that's it it never that's, happens that again should, that should seal it right there we how can you be sure that this is really Shabbat? Maybe you've got the days wrong. <laughs> we don't Are you nuts? We killed somebody on Shabbat. But it only happened once. And that, I think, is God's idea. You, you, you send out a very clear message. You put a very clear penalty. And then once it's over, it will never have to happen again. That's right. Because people will realize God is serious. But at the same time, God's mercy is demonstrated through that extremely high standard of evidence so that... The goal being society as a whole, the people as a whole, keep these laws. If individual people do their things, that's what the curses are in Deuteronomy for. God will deal with them. That's right. But on the, the, the people, the idea is that the society does not become corrupted by people doing these things in public brazenly. That's right. And people go, oh, that must be okay now. Yeah. I, that's the key. Which is what they're doing right now. It's exactly, exactly what they're right. doing right now. Right. 
I'm not a parent, but mm. as a child, I experienced this concept of my parents laying down, you know, don't stand at the table. What? First time I stood at the table, it was very clear. They, it's a pretty mind, high standard. I, I just one thing out of random action. Can you tap dance? That's all I want to know. No, but... You know, it, it was, it was the same, you, you use the same principle for parenting, which is you set the standard, set the punishment. First time you carry it out, if it's severe enough, the child will not do it. That's exactly <laughs> That's exactly what my That's exactly what my That's exactly what my dad did. I never talked back to him again. I always kept to my brothers in check. To their peril. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make an interesting uh, point. You know, you talk about the Beth Din, if they sentence someone to death, you know, this is what it's called. What's interesting in this particular Parsha, we talk about the sons of Levi, what they did to the people with a golden cap, and how many died as a result. 3,000 people died for what they did. And what's interesting, you think about that, killing 3,000 people as an act of righteousness for violating. And we Think about the Beth Dens and what they did, and even the time of the crucifixion, that we have all these people that rejected this wonderful opportunity for salvation. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not that he could have pointed a finger and thousands could have died. So it's very interesting. Even with Peter, when he took the sword and hit the ear of the servant to the temple, he said, this isn't what I want. Couldn't I just call down legions? So it is quite fascinating. You know, the transition from, you know, that paternal, you know, extremely striking them, like with Sodom Gomorrah, to the compassion. But the thing is, it was compassion with a purpose, not that there's anarchy as a result. Well, the result is we're going to see that same striking them all dead in Revelation 19. Yeah, like, that's true. It's a little bit that, scary. That that's a lot more scary. That, that is true. <laughs> Which is why I'm, I still don't get the word transition. I've been thinking this whole time, and I can't get it off my mind. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Mm -hmm. The child that has been properly trained, mm -hmm. you expect more of them. Mm -hmm. God does the same thing with the people. Mm -hmm. it, without a Torah, there's no judgment in that sense. And it doesn't mean that people can go ahead and get away with anything and do it, because then God knows what their hearts are. Yeah. But it will be made evident. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. The woman that came to Jesus... But when they're accusing her of adultery. He did enforce the law. Well, with the two or three witnesses. Mm -hmm. But he also knew her heart and knew that she needed help. And he said, go and sin no more or a worse thing will happen to you. Mm -hmm. So God is compassionate. He is, mm -hmm. but that's what grace is, guys. Living under grace, and you all know this. Yeah. It says he gave his Torah graciously. Mm -hmm. So I want to answer Torah that question. Torah is grace. Mm -hmm. I want to answer your question with what you said in terms of the heart. You kept on underscoring that. And the transition. That the prophets say the day will come that my law will be inscribed in your heart. So I think that's what Jesus was teaching us. It was really inscribing in our heart the three basic commandments. Love the Lord, the God, with all your heart, full of soul, all their might. Love thy neighbors yourself. Love each other as I have loved you. And the third one, when we do that, that really encompasses almost everything. Absolutely. Don't disagree at all. I just don't think he's written that law in my heart. No, nope. that's future tense. 
That's this Tuesday. That is a controversial point. It is a controversial point. I love controversial points. 33 says, gives us the time frame, it says, and that all will know him. That the scripture is lucid does not mean it's not a controversial point. He's right about that. You're saying it's not Now I understand, Joseph. Joseph, I understand with Obamacare, inscribing in our heart will be covered. <laughs> but I'm still going to have to pay more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll close up with this. Um, the whole bond servant thing, real quick. Um, if you find yourself a slave, you work out your time, you go free. You saw in Jeremiah, it was Jeremiah we were reading, wasn't it? 34. Um, so, you've paid your debt to society, as it were, and you've been released. But, if during that time, your master gave you a wife, and you had children, wait, Came in naked, go out naked, right? You didn't come in with the wife, you don't go out with the wife. So you can choose then to say, okay, well, I love my master, I love my wife. I love my master, I love my wife and kids. And you can choose to stay. And then we do the, uh, the all deal. So is it, is it the case that, I guess what I'm wondering is, would you make that choice? We bring that up um, because the tour of the bond servant, while it certainly would apply to some, the thief scenario that we talked about earlier, uh, oftentimes this was just a form of social security. Right. So if I was an individual who fell on hard times and now for, for whatever reason I was unable to um, to provide for myself, I could I could sell myself into indentured servitude, and whoever bought me, as it were, whoever my master became, was required to provide for my basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, etc. And that was, it was a, it wasn't like, you know, in our, in our Western society, when we hear the term slavery, we automatically associate it with the African-American slave trade in our country, which was very brutal, etc., etc. This was really more a form, primarily a form of social security. Um, and uh, without a big government bureaucracy, yeah. um, but it had a defined point where it will end at the Shemitah year. Right. So what's interesting is um, if I fell in hard times, I sell myself into indentured service too. Now my basic needs are met. I'm not sleeping on the street, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and in exchange for my labor, um, if during uh, whether I came in with a wife or or not, or my master provided me a wife during that six years. At the end of the six years, I could choose to uh, remain voluntarily uh, in, in in servitude to that master. Right. Um, and and if I if I if I decided to do that, the master could not refuse. He was obligated to continue to provide for my my basic needs. But what's interesting is the the the, the portion says if he loves his master. 
and his wife and children. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's sort of a prerogative there, mm -hmm. right? You love the master, then you love your your wife and your children. And in other words, the love for Hashem always has to be first and foremost. And I'm reminded of the passage when Yeshua said, if you don't love me more than your mother or father, right, right then yeah. you don't have a part in me. Mm. So the motivation always has to be because he's a good master. And so if you if you if you came to love the master because he treated you well with dignity, with respect, etc., then you voluntarily said, Hey, I'm not going anywhere. Right. So the procedure was he would take you to the gate of the city where the elders would sit, and there was basically a, a kind of a public thing. The master would say, This this you know individual has said he wants to voluntarily uh, stay in in servitude for me uh, for Olam, okay, and that so there's some interpretations that just meant to the next jubilee, whatever, long time, uh, and he would take them. He would take the person before Elohim, is what it says in the Hebrew, but it was understood to be the judges, the Beit Din, if you will, and it was kind of this public thing. They would ask him, "Are you sure you want to do this?" He'd say yes, etc. Then he'd take he'd go back to the home of, of the master, and they'd take this all. Wouldn't all, and he'd stand in the in the threshold of the door or whatever, and they'd nail it to the door, his earlip to the door. What's the point of all that? Mm. Of course, there's all kinds of really pretty, uh, really cool uh, allusions to lots of things which I won't go into. But but the point was this, um, and we see it borne out in the Opstock writings. We are always a slave to someone. Mm -hmm. We are either a slave to sin, as in the example of the thief earlier, or we voluntarily become a slave to righteousness through our through the service we have to Hashem, which is why we see in the apostolic writings, when Shaul starts all of his epistles, I, the Apostle Paul, the bond servant of Messiah Yeshua, he's hearkening back to this exact passage in Mishpatim, and he's making it known Hey, I have voluntarily made myself a slave to Messiah, Amen. which not only is a declaration of who his master is, but it's also a declaration to everybody that the master is now responsible for me. Yeah. Which you can see in his life afterwards. Absolutely. It's a beautiful thing. Really thing. Great, thank you. One um, with regard to the whole social security thing, did you notice... Um, During the Shemitah year, the land lays fallow, and people can come and take food. Who comes to take the food? People have been set free. Wild people have been set free. Wild animals. Wild animals. Poor. The poor people. The poor people. What poor people? There will always be poor, but which poor people are going to eat from your field? The poor people that live near you. No Egyptian poor people. We don't need a big, like you were saying, a big government thing to stamp out poverty. 
What we need is for people to care for those around them and to fulfill the law of Messiah. Yes? I was, um, this talks about a, a, you know, a, a man selling himself into slavery. Mm-hmm. And I just want to point out that it doesn't say women selling themselves into slavery. And there's a lot of, you know, especially you know, nowadays with human trafficking and stuff, not to get too social justice on us, but we see that a lot women will sell themselves and and you know you could twist the scriptures and argue that biblically to sell yourself to someone to provide for your basic needs to care for your family to help your kids or anything like that but that's not a that kind of man's job that's our job to care for the widows that's and right orphans in and fact if you'll turn to uh, chapter 22 20 this is what Colby's talking about. You shall not taunt or oppress a stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not cause pain to any widow or orphan. If you dare to cause him pain, and then you got the weird fill-in-the-blank thing. This is so bad, we're not even going to write it down. <laughs> for if he shall cry out to me, I shall surely hear his outcry. My wrath shall blaze and I shall kill you by the sword and your wives will be widows and your children orphans. You don't want to take care of widows and orphans? Your family will become widows and orphans. I like the uh, commentary talking about the um, uh, I know it's here. I know it's here. Yes. You should expect severe retaliation from the father of orphans and the judge of widows. I just thought that was pretty cool. Because you know, we see those titles later on. Were you done or did I catch up? I am done. I have another comment. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, a different subject. Continue. Oh, I was I'll just going to bring up James. You know, it's, just, it's so cool in James 1 yeah. because it emphasizes, like, you know, religion that is pure and undefiled is like who visits orphans and widows in their affliction and keeps oneself unstained from the world. So I like that that is so cool because it, it I, I don't know if I mean it's still helpful of course to go through the route of organizations and government funded programs and all that stuff. But it's the, easy the to real put money in the is, plate when it comes by too. Right. But the real thing is when you are there with them and and she, because then they can see the love on your face and instead of just receiving some anonymous thing, you know, it's... That's right. It, it and you're blessed more than they are. Yeah. John? A couple of parallels I saw to Psalm 109 was when speaking of, you know, there's a passage also that um, mentioned widows and orphans as well as in this, in this particular portion we're not to speak negatively of our leaders mm-hmm. and, you know, we're obviously also biblically commanded to pray for our leaders. Well, it's really funny that I saw a bumper sticker that led you to Psalm 109. Point a wicked man over him, may any and an accuser stand at his right side, may he be tried and convicted, may he be judged and found guilty, may his days be few, may another take over his position, may his children be orphans and his wife a widow, and may his children wander from their hovels, begging in search of bread, which is also a reference to another psalm and everything like that. I just thought that, you know, Applicable and also somewhat humorous considering our current administration. Well, it's not a curse, that's a blessing. Yeah. You know, if if that's what you want to pray, you know, for your leaders, at least you're praying scripturally. (laughs) (laughs) I like to pray about the fiddler on the roof. 
bless Barack Obama and keep him far from us. Far from us. Talking about um, doing stuff in, in relation to dovetail what Greg said, you know, last year hones in on this as well when he says, "When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was." You know, sick, you came and visited yeah. me. Not when I was naked, you donated clothes to the Salvation Army and they fed me. Or, or when, I was <laughs> you know, when I was hungry, you donated. <laughs> um, and then that brings me to the next, what I was going to say, it's in um, one of the chapters, verse 20. It's in one of the chapters? We it's need to guess. Chapters. It's um, the commandment to extend, extend loans. 22-24. 22-24. Um, when you lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, do not act toward him as a creditor. Do not lay interest upon him. Yep. And a really cool commentary says the you lend part, and notes that the root of this word, I'm just reading from my Humash, that, um, that art school is having a sell on. So <laughs> For those of you unaware, art school is always having a sale. You note that, that the root of this word can also connote um, attachment according to the Torah according accordingly the Torah informs us that by lending money to a needy person we attach ourselves to him and his plight he is not alone because we take it upon ourselves to help him cope with the cope with and overcome the obstacles of you know the obstacles to his self-sufficiency so it goes and talks about we're investing, um, we're investing but without interest you know so it's with I feel like when you loan out money with interest, you can kind of detach yourself and be like, well, I'm going to get a profit or kind of like that. But when you attach yourself to it without interest, it involves you to be a part of the process. And how many poor people wouldn't want to attach themselves to someone who obviously has the means to give a loan in the first place? And that person is going to be able to help him get the skill to, one, pay that back and become self-sufficient and not dependent after that as well. So... When you give the loan, it's not just a piece of paper. You you attach yourself to them. So In the Italian way, if I lend you money at no interest, it's personal. If I lend you money at interest, it's strictly business. Reminds me of the church uh, marquee sign that I saw once. Jesus has invested in you. Have you paid him any interest? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. Gotcha. Um, I got you. But just thinking about like the whole like lending thing, uh, we recently one of the one of the clauses, of course, to these loans is that at the shemitah year you have to pay it back. And Julianne said she was recently listening to Rabbi Gimpel's uh, podcast, and he said that in, in Israel they're they're starting a new um, campaign. They're working on a campaign right now because the shemitah year is coming up again yeah. um, to uh, to raise money, and apparently the government has agreed to match funds. Right. So that what they're going to do is, however much money they end up raising, they're going to go to the banks, and for the like the poorest people who are in debt and that kind of thing, they have to meet certain qualifications. They're going to forgive their debt um, at the shemitah year. How cool is it? Um, I mean, that just sounds amazing. But that's just cool, like <laughs> modern application. We can to, do it right here in our own community. Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, that and I think about like one of the things Rabbi Lappin says about about giving is he says that the giving is not about making someone else like you more. Giving is about making you like the other person more because now you're invested. It's, it's, exactly. That's like what Rick Colby was saying. And think about it, that's really a cool concept because then that means that the wealthy will actually appreciate the poor in that respect. As opposed to right now, where I feel like people who are underneath me are taking from me, they're all leeches, and I'm like, you know, really kind of aggravating all of So it's like, but when you give to someone, then it's an opportunity to have that bond that's actually healthy. 
Mm -hmm. That was lending thing you were talking about, not lending tree, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And the wealthy. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to speak a blessing unto Eugene and Carol Allison for what they've done for all these years. Not only, did, not only did they adopt four children on their own, but they started the Abba Fund, who, without interest, gives money to families to adopt children. Mm -hmm. And it's hundreds of thousands of children now that have been adopted. So like True. something like fifty million dollars now to make itself for that one yeah. start. For the first time. It's, wow. it's amazing it, what Abba Fund has done, and it's and Eugene's just barely kind of the top now, and not really in charge of the day to day. But they started out going to the mailbox and you know checking the mailbox and mailing things, and they did it all hands on for many many years. And God is truly blessed in eight hundred and fifty six families, I think, through. These adoptions yeah. that it's have not, happened. It's not possible mm -hmm. to go to the Alpha Fund website and read any of those stories and, and not need your hanky. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, your, your blessers is busted. They're, <laughs> the, they're the only reason this community exists. They're the only reason this community exists. Because they introduced <laughs> us to the Spurlock. So let's we double were, bless them. If we were here, Another we'd still be here. Yeah, we That's what you kept saying. Yeah. 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 Johnny. I just want to tag off of what. Joshua said a moment ago about the, the giving and providing to the widow and orphan, and, and not only does this show an attachment, but in the Hebrew, ahav, I will love. Hav is give. So in giving, you are actually demonstrating love. So ends the reading of the Word of God. Oh, because we closed the books. Right? Hang on. The Bible. We, I, did you guys check and see if there were any questions? I've been trying to keep it. I mean, I haven't been looking. Oh. Taylor says that the camera stopped at 217. But, but the camera is working because I can see the Maybe light. Taylor stopped. Sometimes it has issues. Really? Did anything happen? I've told you Okay. Yes, Well, they only missed it. One, one final thought that I think, at least for me, really sums up uh, this particular portion, Mishpatim, um, comes from Psalm 99, verse 4. Mighty is the king who loves justice. You founded fairness. The justice and righteousness of Jacob you have made. And that's really what this whole uh, particular... Parsha really is focusing in on is the fact that God is uh, a God that um, that desires justice and he will s make sure at the end of the day that the measure for measure which is what an eye for an eye two for two that that all the scales are balanced at the end of the day you know and and that's ultimately what all of these ordinances are bringing out is the fact that we serve a God who is a God of strict justice. Amen. May you taste of the sweetness of the world to come in this life. May you see your children's children come to faith. May your end be with the life of the world to come and your deeds affect the hope of many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding of Torah. May your mouth speak wisdom to everyone you meet. And may your tongue bring forth song as you praise the Holy One. Blessed is He.
May you have the self-control to look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of Torah. May your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge, your heart rejoice in righteousness, and your feet run to hear the words of the Ancient of Days. Amen. 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 God bless you. Good Shabbos.